If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Psalms, right smack in the middle of your Bibles. Um, if you don't, the passage is in your order of worship. We're in Psalm 129 this morning. Man, what a great weekend. Been awesome. Uh, weather's been warm. Just voted to get a building. Mike Krzyzewski coached his last game ever. This is a great time. Great time. Good times. All right. Um, hey, uh, there's some things going on. Uh, maybe if you're visiting with us or maybe you've been here for a little bit, maybe you're here before the Lenten season started and you're like, why did everything change? Why did worship change? Let me explain a little bit about that. Uh, there's nothing sacrosanct about the church calendar, right? That's why we don't, we don't kind of fall in line with every aspect of it. But originally when it was developed, the reason why um, the church started following a particular way of doing time was that it was, it was to um, acknowledge the fact that one, God is the Lord of time, not Caesar, thus the Julian calendar that the rest of us follow, right? And secondly, it was meant to tell the story of redemption throughout the year. And so as you come to the the season of Lent, the whole point of it is to kind of focus us on our deep need for Jesus, and our worship reflects that by pushing our confession of sin and assurance of pardon to the beginning of the service, which was not, um, which is not uh, just random. Um, The the kind of the forefather of our tradition, John Calvin, and his way they did worship was that was the way it was done every week. You would begin with the confession of sin, and the assurance of pardon because you were coming in knowing that um, you'd blown it that week and you needed forgiveness. And then after you were done there, then it was like, okay, now that we've gotten that out of the way, I am free to worship my God and Father and hear from his word and not have to worry about the fact that, like, I'm a mess. And so that's what we do during the season of Lent. If that's, if that's new to you or, or strange or just kind of weird, I, I hope that kind of helps to flesh that out a little bit. Um, We've been spending uh, the last several months at this point kind of walking through the Psalms of Ascent. You remember a little bit about those, that they are are, um, a certain uh, subsection of the Psalms from 120 all the way um, through 134, which means we're coming close to the end here in the next few weeks. And and they are meant to kind of be a, a song of pilgrimage as as God's people would go from their homes to Jerusalem every year, multiple times a year for the feasts, that was what they were about. And they helped us because we are on pilgrimage. We are not where we're meant to be yet, Christian or not. We're not where we're meant to be. We're in the midst of it. And so these songs help us to focus in on, on that. So if you have your place in, Psalm, in, in the book of Psalms or, or you're going to look at it behind me or in your bulletin, would you stand in honor of God's word? That's our habit here. This is God's word to us. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous and he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hands, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need you. 
there's no one in this room who is not in need of the work of your spirit to open our hearts. Some of us are just completely even unaware of that. We think we've got this covered. We can handle it. We don't. So we need you to work. We ask that you would do that. And Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see Jesus and open our ears to hear from him and our hearts to receive him, to trust in him. Let the gospel come to the forefront, Lord. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Oh. You know, one of, the, one of the most powerful and common arguments against uh, the worshiping of God is pretty simple. You've heard it. Maybe you've asked it. Why do bad things happen? Right? Why do bad things happen? Some of you are here this morning, and this is a question you wrestle with. And the crazy thing about that is, like, every generation thinks they were the first one to, fit, to ask that question. As if, like, suddenly the world has gotten to a place where it's now, all of a sudden, thinking, you know, if there's a good God, why do bad things happen? But this question is actually engaged in, in the Bible itself. The entire book of Job is trying to answer that question. Or at least wrestle with it. I don't know that it answers it necessarily, but it is trying to wrestle with it. The Psalms present without apology a couple of facts. One fact, bad things happen. Second fact, that God is sovereign over them. And that is hard. Like, let's just be honest. Like, that's hard, right? Don't be overly pious. Like, that's a very difficult thing. Now, I should say, I don't think that I'm going to be satisfying you today if that's your hang-up with Christianity or with theism in general. Uh, But what I will say is this confusion, the confusion that we face, is probably no different than the question and confusion that comes from small children who trust their good parents and yet get assaulted by needles every few months in their early life by people in scrubs. What this psalm deals with and what we're going to see today is simply this, that Um, affliction's purpose is entirely based on your status. Affliction's purpose is entirely based on your status. Let's get into it. Let's review really quick how these Psalms work. Remember, we've said this over and over, but I need to keep it in front of us because it does help us understand how uh, how to interpret them. These Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, come in clusters of three. And the first Psalm in that cluster gives you a state of distress. The second... God's provision of getting you out of it. And the third one is the arrival. So you start with distress, you're on the move, and you've arrived, right? And so we are in, we are in uh, the first of that cycle. We're in a section of distress. So it should make sense over what we read. Look down at verse 1. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Okay? Pretty bad situation, right? Sounds pretty bad. Let's, let's break it down. That word afflicted, um, that, that is a, a word that's used over and over in the Psalms for being persecuted, harmed, or opposed. It basically means to be, to be uh, shown hostility towards. This is, a, this is a situation in which this person is feeling persecuted or harmed. They, someone is against them. Now, interestingly, when they say they, right? Greatly have they afflicted me. Doesn't give us the they, does it? And we've said this before, but I think it bears repeating that this is one of the important aspects of all the Psalms, but specifically of the Psalms of Ascent. Like, they're not specific over 
what it is that's going on. And the reason is because this wasn't just meant to be a, a little um, historical nugget, like a, something you visit in a museum. This is meant to be prayed and sung by us. And so that they can easily represent the things that we are dealing with, the things that we feel afflicted by. It's meant to be prayed by those who aren't in the same exact situation. So greatly have they afflicted me. Say it again. Greatly have they afflicted me, yet they have not prevailed against me. So that yet gives us the sense that like, the reality of affliction, the reality of the problem that's, been going, that's going on is mitigated by another reality that this affliction has not destroyed them. It has not prevailed over them. That's difficult for us to recognize, isn't it? I mean, I want you to think, again, these are meant to be kind of give us words for what we're feeling in the moment. And when you and I go through affliction, the idea that it's not going to destroy us is normally the last thing on our mind, isn't it? It's normally not what we're wrestling through. Normally, we're thinking, this is it. This is going to get it. And, and so that's what we do in the midst of it. And once it's over, generally, we kind of move past it and go, whew, glad that's done. We never reflect on the fact that, you know what? That was really bad. But here I am. That was really bad. I, I, I struggled a lot. I suffered a lot. And yet, it has not prevailed against me. We don't think about that, do we? Let's keep going. This is going to, we'll, we'll tie all this together in a minute. Look down at verse 3. The plowers have plowed upon my back. So here again, we come back to, again, agrarian society. In agrarian societies, you use agricultural metaphors because they just make sense. They don't make as much sense to us. But I want you to get not just, um, I want you to understand that when someone says they have plowed furrows in my back, that is not like pleasantries, right? I want you to think about that. Like a plow digging a furrow is like, that, that's, that's getting the row set. And for someone to say they have dug furrows into my back is a brutal, brutal image. This is not like, you know, I had a toothache. This is like something serious is going on. But here's what's super important about that. The focus of verse 3, if you have it out, just look at it. The focus of it is not the kind of affliction. It's the person's experience of it. Right? They didn't, the metaphor does not mean that someone actually took a plow and ran over this dude on the back. Uh, and it doesn't say, like, this is what was, they dug furrows in my back when they did X. It's simply giving my experience of what is going on right now is that it is as if someone is just, just destroying me. And that's important because that experience is meant to be something that we focus on. It is, it is the experience of the person who is afflicted. Okay, why does that matter? It matters because we can always say, no matter what is going on in our lives, and you know you do this, we can always say, well, it's not as bad as so-and-so. Right? Listen, there is no experience that you can have here in America that you can't point to somewhere else in the world right now and go, well, it's not as bad as that. What this psalm is saying is, we're not talking about actual what, what is actually happening? We're talking about your experience of it. So, for instance, I was in seminary. Uh, obviously, I went to seminary. But I'm, I'm in seminary. And my, my, uh, my best bud in seminary, super smart dude. 
um, brilliant guy. And he, um, he's talking to me and he's like, Rick, I don't, I'm supposed to, we, you, in seminary, you have um, these things called preaching labs. The dumbest thing ever. In a preaching lab, you go in the front of a classroom and you preach to like five other people who are all students and don't know anything about preaching with a, with a professor in the back who's probably a pastor who's dead tired and like, I'm getting my money for this. And, and nobody really cares. And it's the worst environment ever. But um, he was getting ready to preach in one of those preaching labs and he was preaching on a passage in uh, the book of Second Kings why he chose that book, but he's preaching on that. And the whole, the thing he was struggling with is that the passage that is being, that he was preaching on is about a group of people, the the Israelites, being taken into exile. And he's like, I don't know how to make this fit with the people I'm preaching to, because these people who are being taken into exile were led out of their city that they thought God would never do anything but protect. And they're being led out of the city with fish hooks in their noses and a string tied to it, which is true. And he's like, nobody's ever gone through that here. And one of the things I told him, I said this, I said, well, I said, Brian, maybe, maybe think about it this way. I said, no, none of us have ever actually experienced the sense of abandonment by God that must have happened when they're going like, my God lost. He just left us. And here we are with fish hooks in our noses. I said, but if my wife breaks down on the side of the road, she will feel as if God has abandoned her and the world is falling apart, right? And then that's just her experience of it. And it's because of, because of the fact that her mom's Chevrolet always broke down when, they, when she was a kid and it was this big traumatic thing. But the point is, is like, our experience, our, our emotional experience of something is determined by, by our story. And so, no. Have we ever had furrows dug in our back? No. Is it as bad as so-and-so? No. Is it affliction? Yes. It is. Your experiencing is that. Please stop pretending that it's not. Okay? But then we move on to the, that experience is confronted with the righteousness of the Lord. Look down at verse 4. But with you there is, oh, sorry, that's next week. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Now, when we say righteous, I need to, I need to explain something. Uh, most of us in this room have been raised in, in, in a tradition called Protestantism, right? And Protestantism kind of uh, pushed back against medieval Catholicism. And what they did was they said, righteous is not, or, or when we talk about God's righteousness, we're talking about his, his goodness, this kind of, unsurpassing perfection. That's a little bit of an over, uh, over uh, correction, okay? What we're talking about is not an abstract goodness. When, when the Bible says righteousness, what we're talking about is, his, is God's faithfulness to his promises. It's not goodness in the abstract. It's his goodness in regards to what he has said he will do. And so when we talk about um, the fact that the Lord is righteous, again, we are bringing a story into this that has to do with God's covenant promise to rescue the world, to rescue us from our sin. God is righteous because he is keeping his promises to actually rescue us from our own brokenness and the brokenness of others. That is, that is what we're talking about when we talk about the Lord being righteous. It is something concrete He is righteous, for he has cut the cords of the wicked. Okay, again, this is continuing the agricultural metaphor. In the ancient world, you had an ox, 
axe had straps to it. Straps were connected to a plow, right? And so to cut the cords of the wicked is literally to cut the cords of that plow so they can't move it anymore. In other words, it is, it has brought them to a point of failure. It's taken away their ability to continue. And who was continuing? Well, the wicked. Now, we don't like to use the word wicked unless we're talking about a green-skinned witch. We do not use the word wicked, okay? And the reason is, is because it sounds really um, intense. It sounds uh, overly judgmental. It's, it's just not something we like to utilize in it as a descriptor of others. But in the Old Testament, it, it can mean different things in different contexts. In the Psalms, that word wicked, though it, again, it kind of grates on our ears, it is used most often to talk about people who are opposed to God's people and thus opposed to God. In other words, the wicked isn't necessarily the worst of the worst of the worst, necessarily. It's those who aren't worshiping God. Now, I know, we, we don't like that. We're not going to describe people that way. But we need to understand the way that the, the Bible does, okay? And so, here's something we need, to, we need to recognize. The psalmist is seeing God's faithfulness in the midst of this affliction. So that begs the question, does that mean the affliction has stopped? Well, that's the weird thing. Because given what we get in the next few verses, probably not. Probably not. I mean, why would he be praying for what he's praying for in verses 5 to 8 if everything's done? He's like, eh, I'm good now. So how can someone experience the Lord's faithfulness in the middle of something that seems so disjointed from their expectations? And that is, that is the question, is it not? Again, we'll get back to answering that in a second. Now let's look at what we want. Look down at verse 5. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. Whoa. (laughs) That's strong, right? You know what the strongest of those words is? Hate. Again, unless we're talking about like, I hate that restaurant or I hate that kind of food. We don't don't often talk about that. We don't like strong language. Like we may say like, I mean, those who don't really believe what we believe or, you know, those who, those who, uh, you know, just do things a different way. But most of us would never describe those who don't believe as someone who, who hates. But listen, in the, in, in the original, in the Hebrew, hate and enemy are synonymous. And we need to understand that when we say that, the, the scriptures are very clear that you and I and everyone in the world is not born neutral. Right? We're not born as if we're like a, the, the tabula rasa. We're the blank slate for everyone. And, and something comes in and begins Uh, nurturing us and we move in a given direction. We are born, according to the scriptures, um, independent, moving towards independence of God, away from him. Right? One of the early Christian leaders, the Apostle Paul, says that by nature we are children of wrath. And what that means is that uh, by nature, in other words, not by nurture, but by who we are, that sin, that, that that is something that we are, not just something we do. In fact, we do it because it's what we are. And this is because, again, though we hate binaries, hating God is the only other option to loving him. You're like, man, that's a little strong. I mean, I don't hate him. I just don't pay any attention to him. Yeah, ignoring is kind of hating. 
I don't know if you've ever been ignored. I don't know if you've had an experience of being ignored. I've had lots of them. That's why I'm so loud. Makes it easier or less easy for people to ignore me. Uh, being ignored, being um, having having someone feel uh, indifference towards you. That's pretty much hatred. Trying to live independently of God, being indifferent towards Him, ignoring Him is hatred. And so I know that may be hard. And some of us who are in this room who aren't Christians are like, "Wait a minute, that's that's really hard." I, I understand that that may you may bristle at that, but as you as you as you kind of grapple with it, what I want you to see is like that's not what I think. That's what the Scriptures think. That's how the Bible defines it. So we have to wrestle with that. And what He's saying about these folks is, "May those who hate Zion hate." Jerusalem, hate God's people, hate the place where God dwells, in other words, hate him, be put to shame, okay? Now, what that means in the scriptures, for someone to be put to shame means to openly be in the wrong, okay? Had that experience? We, we know what that's like, right? To be open, like exposed as being wrong, like I did wrong, I was wrong, I said something wrong, I, and everyone kind of can see it. But not pleasant, right? No, no one likes, no one's thinking, you know what I would love to be today? Exposed. And no one's saying that. That's what the, that's what this psalmist is asking for, that they be exposed, openly shown to have placed their hope in the wrong place and turned backwards. And that means to fail. So in other words, the psalmist wants, what he wants is to be shown openly, no matter his experience, that he was right to trust in God. That everyone else who hates God is in the wrong. I need to be openly vindicated, in other words. He doesn't just want that. He wants justice. Look down at verses 6 to 8. Verses 6 to 8 are what scholars call imprecations. Okay? Imprecations. What an imprecation is, is praying for God's justice to fall on people. And again, there's something else makes us a little uncomfortable, especially those of us who look at things and go, who am I? I mean, who am I to pray something like that? That's just awful. And I get that. But I also want us to realize that these are in the Bible, which means we can't just go, eh, that doesn't make any sense to me. Therefore, I'll ignore it. I'm not going to worry about it. We have to actually wrestle with it. So look down at verses 6 to 7. He says, let them be like grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand. Okay? So um, my old house was on Walnut Street, which is that, that way, um, a, a few blocks. And it was an older house, um, and it had a detached garage. And, and the detached garage had gutters running around it that I'm pretty sure when I moved in, hadn't been cleaned since the house was built in the um, 1890s. And so um, it had not leaves in it. There were not leaves in my gutters. There was like three inches of rich black soil at this point, right? Because the leaves had deteriorated. And after my first summer um, there, what I found was over and above my gutters were little maple tree sprouts, because my maple tree was dropping things in and they were growing. But here's the problem. That's what this is talking about. 
grass that grows on a housetop? No one wants to grow grass on the roof, okay? This is talking about things that just get started, and because of what's going on, they start to grow up. But you know what happens with all of them? They all die. And they die because they can't get roots. They can't go deep enough. They can't get cared for. That's not the kind of place they were meant to grow. And so what this guy is praying for is that these people who he says are afflicting him, that they will not grow or flourish. And when it talks about the fact that the, the reaper's not going to fill his hand, the binder of she's not going to fill his arms, you have to understand, like, that's the people who put that grass to use. When they're talking about grass, they're not talking about the, the nice stuff in my yard. When I talk about putting my grass to use, it, it just means being beautiful and you can walk on it. It's a carpet. When they're talking about it, it means doing something with it like taking all those clippings and like binding it together because they're so large and saying they're useless. They can't be used. They're not going to flourish. And then there's verse eight. Nor do those who pass by say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. In other words, he's asking that the Lord not bless them. We talked about blessing last week. Talking about the fact that he's saying, may they not be people that, that have blessing pronounced over them, okay? Which means that this guy wants justice. And that is not wrong. We think about justice. In, in our society, there are two different words, right? There's justice and vengeance, right? We have those two different words. The Old Testament has those two different words, but they mean pretty much the same thing. And here's why. Offenses are against people. In our system of, of justice, in our justice system, right, you offend a code. Right? Criminal, criminal suits are the state. You've offended the state against the person. And the state speaks for the victim, not the victim for the victim. And so, and so that is part of our system. But in their system, and especially because we're dealing with God, and God is a person, not a law code. It's an offense against a person. And so God even says, and I know we talk about it all the time, ah, oh, vengeance is wrong. Vengeance. No, no, no. God doesn't say vengeance is wrong. He says vengeance is mine. He's saying let me handle it because I'll do a better job of it than you will. I'll make sure it's done right. You have a right to that, but don't pursue it. I'll take care of it. Okay? Asking for God to bring justice is not wrong. And it's not wrong because that is something God wants. God hates sin. He hates what it da- that it damages his good creation. So the obvious question, right? Some of you are thinking, well, okay, Rick, if that's true, then why doesn't he just get rid of it all? That gets back to the first question, doesn't it? And I don't know, but here's what I do know. In God's strange providence, he often uses the evil that others intended to do the good that he intended. Think back to the story of Joseph, one of the, one of the patriarchs in the Old Testament. Joseph's brothers were a little jealous of him, and that's because Joseph was kind of a jerk, okay? He was a jerk. Let's not, let's not idolize him. Um, he, he had dreams and visions, and he, um, he boasted about it. Um, he was the youngest, he was favored, he was spoiled, and his brothers didn't appreciate that, right? And so they uh, sold him into slavery. Joseph ended up in Egypt, went through some hard times, uh, got, went to prison for stuff he didn't do, was there for a long time, but eventually ended up as the, the second in charge. The only person more powerful than him in Egypt was Pharaoh. 
And his brothers come to him, don't realize it's him. Big, long story. And then eventually he reveals himself to them, and they're scared that he's going to kill them. He says, no, no, you don't understand. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. So this thing that was really awful and, and full of affliction for him, he's like, no, no, this, this ended up being God's good plan. Think about David and Bathsheba, right? David, the, the famous king of Goliath fame, um, Bathsheba. Hmm. Uh, interesting bathing habits, right? Uh, she does the roof thing up there with the grass, apparently. And so uh, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, has her husband murdered. That's terrible, right? But from David and Bathsheba comes Solomon. And from Solomon would come arguably the greatest king that Israel ever had. The ultimate of this would, of course, be the cross, right? What more... Uh, Ugly act of injustice is there in the entire history of man than the cross of Jesus Christ that God planned. The evil that others are intending, God used and intended, not just used. Used makes it sound like he was kind of like, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this. You know what? I'll come up with a plan B. I'm going to MacGyver this thing and blah, blah, blah. He intended it for good, for flourishing. So our desire for justice, for God to make things right, is not a bad thing. The question will always be, will you be okay with the way he does it? Now, let's bring this home really quick. I said at the beginning that the Psalms talk about affliction and God's sovereignty at the same time. And the, in, in fact, the, the reality of God's sovereignty over circumstances is the basis on which the Psalms pray for him to make an end to it. Think about it. If God wasn't sovereign over those things, why are you praying for him to put an end to it? If he can't do anything about it because he's a gentleman and doesn't want to get involved in the ways of man, then why are you praying that he's going to actually fix this? He's not going to then, right? That's the basis on which. So what is God up to in all of this? How do we as Christians view affliction in a way that's talked about here? Because let's be honest, when affliction happens, and it does, again, I'm not even going to state what, what, Rick, what just, what kind of qualifies as affliction? Again, we're talking about your experience, okay? But when that happens, our first response is to think that either God is absent or he's judging us, right? And generally, the view of that has to do with whether the affliction is coming external to me, and therefore he's absent, or internal, like I did it, therefore he's judging me, right? Either he's judging me because I, I messed up, and so this bad thing that's happening is because I am just, he, is, he has got to punish me, or it's because he's absent because someone else is doing it. And generally, we vary between those, right? The reality, though, is that God is in the midst of both of those. And so, again, maybe you don't believe me, but if not, look at the life of Jesus, okay? If affliction is, is, is abnormal, if affliction is kind of not the norm, then, and, and it, it can be avoided with like good behavior or better worship, then don't you think we shouldn't see it in the life of Jesus at all? Right? If enough faith gets you out of this, if enough obedience keeps you away from affliction, then Jesus should be the one who experienced nothing but good, right? If you've ever read the Gospels, that's like the opposite of what we see. Or what about the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul, who, who by all intents and purposes, I mean, 
Kathy read his resume. Anyone want to kind of put theirs up against his? Here's a guy who had been gotten 40 lashes minus one, like however many times, been stoned, beaten, thrown out of, out of shipwrecked. Like this guy had had it all, abandoned by his friends, put on trial. Or Peter or John or any of Jesus' disciples. Because what we see in their lives is affliction after affliction. But why? Right? Why? Well, here's why the status matters. That guy Paul that I've been talking about, he wrote another letter in the New Testament called Romans. And in Romans chapter 5, he says this, that suffering, affliction, produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope never fails. So what that means is, is that the affliction that you're going through, the affliction that's happening is something that is being used to change and grow you. I mean, think of it like this. Michelangelo, not the Ninja Turtle, like the other one, the one who made art and stuff, right? So famous statue of David, right? Okay. Uh, If you've never seen it, Google it. But it's the famous statue of David. And someone asked him once, how did you make David? And he said, I took the block of marble and I broke off everything that wasn't David. And what that means is that what is going on in the life of the Christian during affliction is that God is breaking off in you everything that is not Jesus. He's using that to chip it away, to go, you know what? There's a little, there's a little uh, selfishness here. Dink, 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 dink. Right? I don't know. Maybe that's pleasant for the marble, but I doubt it, right? I don't know, hammers and chisels, generally a bad thing. Like breaking pieces of you off is to break off everything that isn't Jesus. Listen to me. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, God has emptied every bit of judgment for you out on him. There's nothing left. Nothing left. So that means that God is not judging you. Nor is he somehow off his throne. Like I said, the most seemingly um, unjust event in the entire history of the world is the crucifixion of Jesus. And Peter said that this happened because of the determined plan of God. Now, does that mean that it's easy or pleasant? No. Y'all realize how much work there is to do? Do you realize? I, I, I know we don't, right? Because we think we're pretty pleasant and nice. Do you realize how much the gap is between me and Jesus, you and Jesus? How much work there is for God to do? It's not pleasant in my life either. Let me be honest with you. It's not. That is because God has a lot to do to get rid of our arrogance, our independence, our selfishness, our self-deception, our lack of love. But it means that God's purpose for you isn't destruction or malice. His purpose is to make you more like Christ. He is righteous, which is to say he is faithful to his promises that everything needed for your salvation, he has accomplished in Jesus. And now he's working that out in your life by making you more and more like him. Which means that what others, what even you intend for evil, God is going to intend for good. 
So if you aren't a Christian here this morning, can I tell you the purpose of affliction is only slightly different? Because for the, for the Christian, the purpose of affliction is meant to deepen our repentance and faith. It's meant to kind of push us further and further towards faith in Christ. For those who aren't Christians, can I tell you, it is meant to get your attention. It is meant to get your attention, to bring you to repentance and faith. It is meant to be a foretaste of what will come if you don't, which means don't waste it. Don't waste that affliction. Let it lead you to Jesus. Will it take it all away? No. But, but he'll be with you in the midst of it because he went before you in it. He was afflicted for you. Now, let's get to getting justice. Because <laughs> this psalm is unapologetic about praying for people to get theirs. <laughs> Let me be clear in this. Every person who ever has or will live, listen to me, they will be judged by God. Sin is our nature, and everyone will be judged. The question, like I said before, is whether you're okay with how he does it. Here's what I mean. The gospel is not, when you place your faith in Jesus, God just kind of gives you a pass on your sin. Follow me, because this is important. It's not he just kind of winks at it and goes, oh, that's okay. Now you're on my team. It's all right. No big deal. Nor is it... Nor is the gospel like I'm going to make you good enough so that your good from becoming a Christian on kind of outweighs the bad that you did before. Nope. That's not the gospel either. If that's the gospel for you, that is not good news. I'm just going to tell you right now. Not good news to me. And I think if you're being honest, it's not to you. The gospel is that when you place your faith in Jesus, he receives the judgment for you in your place. That judgment still comes. It just comes on him and not you. You with me? It's not that your sin just kind of gets sloughed off. It's that someone paid for it. Someone died for it. Someone has to. And so Jesus did. All sin will be judged. The question is, who will bear it? Will it be you? Are you confident enough to stand before God on that day and weigh your life, your actions, your thoughts, your decisions, your motivations, and your secrets against the perfection of Jesus? Really? I'm not. I'm a hot mess. I wouldn't want to be compared to your life, better yet, Jesus' life. That is why Christians trust in Christ, not to make them good, to make them right before God. Because on our own, we can't. But with him, there is no sin too great because he bore the judgment that sin deserves. So when, this, when you pray like this psalm, the question must be asked of us. Are you willing to let God answer that question by having Jesus bear that person's judgment for him or her? Or is that not satisfying to you? Like, nah, man. No, I want them to pay. You mean like you did? You mean like you did? Because the reality is, God rescuing that person is an answer to prayer. It is an answer to this prayer. They have been exposed. They have been turned backward. They have been removed from the blessing of God. They've just done it in Jesus the same way that you did. 
course, the other possibility is also there. That God would judge them on their own. In either case, the faith and repentance comes for us in asking God for it and leaving how he does it in his hands. We have to trust that his plan for the world is better than ours. And that if he chooses to rescue that person, and listen, I know some of you, as soon as I start talking about this, you have an image in your head of someone who has deeply wronged you. Deeply wronged you. Don't think just because we clean up real nice, there's not stories of deep hurt, deep abuse, tragic events. I know it's hard to think about this. I'm not asking you to get there today. But we have to trust that if he chooses to save that person, then it magnifies his mercy just like it did when he rescued us. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, it it is hard. These things are hard. On the one hand, it's hard because some of us are going through affliction right now. And we're struggling because there's someone who is doing something or some event, or maybe it's just us. We've put ourselves in the middle of a, just a storm. And it's hard to think that, like, you are with us. It's harder even to think that you're using that to make us more like Jesus. So I ask that you give us faith to believe that. And for others of us, Lord, we, we're thinking about praying that prayer, and we are not okay if you don't rain down hellfire on that person. And so I just ask for grace to trust you with however that is meant to happen. Because, Lord, if it magnifies your mercy and makes you famous, may that be the, the cry of our heart. Help us there, Lord. We can't get there on our own. It has to be by your spirit. So we ask that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen.